working? Hi, <laughs> how are you? I'm good. That's how are you? good. I'm well, thanks. Turil, I'd like to talk with you just about some of the works that you've presented um, through Oslo Kunstverening. The work of yours that I'm um, most familiar with is what you brought to Senegal to to participate in the the biennial in Senegal in uh, I think it was 2018. Yeah, 2018. Yeah, mm. yeah, which was a a, a version of a uh, of a work called Unlearning Optical Illusions. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Could you give a sort of summary of of that work? Of the work. Mm. Uh, I had just been to Benin in West Africa and had uh, learned about uh, a fabric that is very, a type of fabric that is very uh, common around there, wax print. And that to my eyes looked like something very distinctly from that place. Mm. Uh, Just because, of course, I I saw it there, Mm. I guess. I started. I uh, had a conversation with some people, but I got to learn a little bit about that history, that it is a longer history of uh, of appropriation. Because the, the I guess I asked about the production, where they were made. And they, to my surprise, it was made in the Netherlands. Mm. A lot of it. Not, not like all production, but lots, lots of the wax prints are made there still also so the story of that textile culture starts with in indonesia uh with where uh, they had handcrafted the techniques of handcrafted uh, wax printing where you drip wax on cloth and then color it and you can take off the wax and new new layers and create very uh distinct patterns from that so when the Dutch uh, colonized Indonesia, uh, tradesmen there, uh, merchants, uh, saw those uh, cloths and uh, some were starting to manufacture them uh, mechanically in, in the Netherlands or in Holland. Uh, and to try and try to sell it back to the Indonesian market, which for various reasons didn't work. Uh, it didn't. It didn't kind of get to access that market, uh, and then, uh, but then found other markets in West Africa at first. Mm. So the first products that were sold there were the copies of Indonesian designs as far as I have understood that history. Uh, and then it took on, it became sort of, or it transformed. So they had then a market for this mechanically produced wax prints. Uh, and then the patterns started changing, responding to what the, to the market. So uh, it started to change into what we can now see as uh, more distinctly uh, either Beninese or Beninois or Ghanaian or uh, other other types of patterns that you find throughout West Africa and also other places. Mm. So I was interested in that how, uh, well, that story is fascinating and it's also been um, told many times, I think, also in 
contemporary art works, um, I discovered. Hmm. And so you designed fabric prints based on these optical illusions that you'd researched? Hmm. The, yeah. the earlier studies, they uh, looked at optical illusions uh, and found that people from different places in the world saw illusions differently. Mm. I found quite fascinating and I think it was very much disputed also the different theories that came up as an explanation for that that registered uh, the registered uh, difference in perception mm. and visual perception. Uh, and some of those theories were putting an emphasis on race and some of them on, well, various things. And one later theory, uh, I think from the 60s, uh, or came with the hypothesis that uh, the reason that people in these studies uh, saw these illusions differently was because of their physical visual environments. So they were pointing towards differences in architecture and places where these, these studies were done. Mm. And they called it, what was it? The carpentered world uh, <laughs> in opposition to the circular cultures. So looking at like that, they had, in some places there were like very, a lot of straight lines. Uh, architectures and other roundhouses. So quite quite reductive uh, and problematic, not only this theory and very much disputed, not only this one, but also the earlier theories, which were uh, the, the racial ones, of course. Mm. Um, but anyhow, interesting, I found, uh, well, the, the research in itself interesting to look at like sort of in a uh, rear view mirror to see what actually informs their uh, interpretation of the results of that those studies and also how uh, were those studies actually done uh, what kind of biases were there but anyway I also thought it was an interesting idea that uh, or proposition that we learn from our surroundings we're not born with one way of uh, Seeing the world, mm. uh, I mean, I mean, just visually, physically, mm. uh, but it's something that we learn. I think this is fairly known that you know, babies they don't see for the first. The, the, the visual, uh, visual cognition is something that you learn. Mm. Mm. Uh, but this also emphasized how um, built structures around us, what we see, the, like the human-made things around us also uh, is kind of rearing our visual cognition. Uh, so the, that particular hypothesis about the carpented world and the circular cultures, it said that people from a culture where there's lots of rectilinear lines and shapes uh, interpret the illusions that the, particularly the Miller-Lyer illusion that we were studying, uh, interpret that as a representation of something three-dimensional. So it's 
you'd see the illusion strongly as an illusion. Mm. Uh, while as those who didn't have all those straight lines in the physical built environment uh, would see it less as an illusion because it's not, it didn't uh, kind of trigger mm. the impulse to perceive something two dimensional as mm. a representation of something three dimensional. So I think this is, or that was at least one interpretation of that. Um, so that was like what I was interested in from the start of in that project, thinking about these things and how uh, how do we interpret that hypothesis as do will it be interpreted as something being like modern as opposed to something not modern because modern architecture has all these. Um, straight lines. Mm. Uh, like there are a lot of ways of it. Yeah, it was it was interesting in that, and also in how, uh, in more in more general sense, um, how, um, well, how we basically all see, maybe see things, learn things, and see things in in different ways, but we still share share the same space and share the same world mm. uh, but having learned from something from from where we were born that will perhaps uh, always kind of uh, influence our vision mm. so then I was thinking is it then possible to unlearn those things that are so strongly or feels naturalized or are naturalized into how you see things mm. uh, or not nat naturalized, but um, and become a part of the way that you're looking at the world. Is it, what is that, what is the space and possibility for unlearning something? And apparently unlearning is harder than learning. Mm. But then when you're learning that maybe what you're looking at is not, the one it's not true <laughs> i mean that is that it is subjective and that other people might look at things differently mm. uh, what's the possibility for then trying to unlearn how you uh, intuitively see things it's a difficult story uh, i think going back to the both the uh. colonization of indonesia and how uh, colonizers were uh, finding other markets and then at the beginning it was mainly produced in Europe mm. uh, being imported which again has threatened local textile traditions and industries in in the countries where uh, the cloths were imported mm. Mm. Uh, but also has I mean um, certain there's a whole uh, culture naming a culture of giving names and symbolism and so on to to these um, patterns as well uh, which is really intricate and, and interesting I think so yeah it, it's not like it's all uh, you can look at it through the lens of colonialism, capitalism, and markets. Uh, 
but also through the lens of how uh, how uh, culture is responding and adapting. Mm. 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 I mean, I, I suppose as well, it's a material, like literally a material, it's a fabric that is so synonymous with um, cultural identity too. So it's, yeah, it really shows that it's not a, a, a um, um, or the project a, a, a sits in, in a, um, yeah, difficult space of um, talking about um, um, appropriation and cultural identity and, uh, and questioning kind of oversimplified notions of um, origin, <laughs> perhaps, mm. um, and perception and perception of ourselves or perception of another. Um, mm. Or, uh, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating project, but it is, yeah, as you say, it's, um, it is uh, difficult, I suppose. Is there, uh, like, what, what how, how has, I mean, it's, it's had lots of iterations that um, mm. your, your work on this subject, it must have had some really interesting uh, responses and um, yeah mm. yeah both um, responses that are like oh wow I didn't know mm. about this mm. but also uh, very negative responses mm. I think mm. and I think like in hindsight I'd say even though this took I mean, it had several iterations and uh, I had plenty of time to think about these things. I also think I was going too fast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. In in going too fast in the sense of reaching um, an outcome or? Yeah, in reaching an outcome, I mm. think. Mm. Like... Um, Sometimes, I mean, you start to kind of cross-pollinate some ideas, but and and found a sort of a, a visual kind of a, a manifestation of it. Uh, I think I thought that something I, I found in there, like that, was to me uh, very interesting. Like these these two very separate stories, histories of. Mm. textiles and appropriation and colonialism on one hand and then perception on the other uh, that like it's interesting to think of uh, theoretically it was sort of like feeding into each other for me but I um, also think when it came to uh, going through like because it's a big production uh doing industrial production of textiles mm. kind of made things go pretty quickly, <laughs> I think, uh, at a certain point. And then you also have to, it kind of, it becomes quite, mm, heavy. I mean, materially heavy, production-wise heavy, and then also, uh, maybe needs another solidity to it than the theoretical or uh, ID mm. framework that I had created could 
really handled at the time. That's mm. how I see it today. Um, mm. No, it's been a learning, really a learning uh, project for me, I think. And also to see how my own, I mean, registering my own changes in how I view things through mm. the same period. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And also maybe difficult because they look, it looks very like aesthetically, I mean, it looks very bright. <laughs> Mm. I mean, bright, I think bright colors and mm. clear in a way, but mm. but the history is quite dark. Mm. Mm. But in uh, in Dakar, the the, the I, I believe it's the only time that you did it. But you 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 um the the fabric was um, formed into these bags that you um um these ubiquitous <laughs> bags that are everywhere made of kind of tarpaulin mm. big square bags that um and uh, you told me that in that, that uh, is it in Kenya they they're known as the bags are known as Ghana must go Nigeria Nigeria yeah sorry yeah mm. um but they're also known as the people kind of load these um uh the bags the, the, what the bags are known as um uh can change depending on who the kind of the incoming population is of any place so so they're also in various places around the world they're known as kind of chinese bags or um yeah there they are uh, yeah can you talk a little bit about that mm um yeah maybe i thought there's a little bit of a parallel of how how a certain type of industrially made product travels mm. uh it also changes or takes on uh, very specific meanings uh locally it can be different from different type of places mm. uh, and that's why uh or that's what I was interested in with those bags, uh, seeing it as a little bit of a, um, a pendant to the history of uh, the truck sprint. That also looks different from the con in the different context that you see it in, mm. and depending on your uh, own uh, well knowledge and experience with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of. I mean, it 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 served uh, the 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 form of those bags served a, a strong purpose in offsetting the simplistic reading of the fabric itself. I think, mm. like it clearly kind of problematized the the oversimplified oversimplified reading of 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 the um, the fabric and and prompted you as a viewer to, to um well there was like this double metaphor i suppose or pr prompted you to, to, to the, the, there was something else going on mm. yeah yeah so i'd i'd i guess that's also something i just learned about in ghana so that had my interest in that mm. was uh because it was just called the ghana must go and i was 
<laughs> I was just wondering about uh, the naming and and why it had that name and, and found there was a story to it and and so that it has these different local meanings mm. various places mm. uh, and also when exhibited in the car that was very much the response as well I think uh, besides whether good or bad but just that people would read in uh, meaning derived from their own personal experience with it. Mm, mm. Mm. Whether it means leaving, I guess that's the two main different mm. <laughs> uh, of, of, of relation to that. It's, it's leaving or arriving somewhere. The, the idea of a kind of project like that that has so many, that is difficult um, and can be problematized, but that also has a progression of multiple kind of iterations and um, that it, it's it just sort of in flux the whole time is mm. is really interesting and kind of a testament to that kind of um, annotation. But it also speaks to the difficulty as an artist when when you uh, produce something that becomes quite um, iconic and in a small kind of scale. It really it, it that project was quite iconic for you, mm. I think. Mm. Um, st- you know, like you still see some of the hike um, caps <laughs> around oh. in the in the art scene, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And it became it was a kind of ubiquitous. Um, it it was quite a ubiquitous presence for a little while, wasn't it? Mm. Mm. Yeah, especially through through hikes uh, project, I think turning it into clothing. Mm. Uh, I was very interested in in you know ex- excited about uh, like something leaving the gallery and the mm. contemporary art context like mm. kind of out of my hands. It's mm. uh, what I I think wanted for it because I was interested in. Um, the possibility for, uh, for or or what happens with the, an interpretation mm. when it, the context where uh, which is so controlled, like a gallery is very a very controlled context mm. for. Um, but I, I also see that that's uh, that's a big. It demands something else, I think, from a work than <laughs> when it's in a gallery space. And I'm not saying that as uh, putting value to either one or the other space. It's just that it's quite different. Mm. Mm. I mean, I think like um, I, 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 perhaps like you, I mean, I, I kind of I, I, uh, I digest a lot of um, science communication mm. Um but from a non-scientific position and I can sort of see how important it is. Like it's so important to, for science to communicate to a non-scientific audience. It's really, mm. it's super important. And, but there's very few people that are really good at it. Um, mm. uh, but those that are, it can kind of capture the imagination and it can, you know, really um, transmit the, the, the poetry of science or the metaphorical potential as we've also talked about in, in our understanding of ourselves or, you know, it can really 
go a long way to capturing the public's kind of imagination um, mm. and, and engagement with scientific ideas. And I think the same can be said for art, or should should, should be. But, but I don't necessarily think it's always the artists themselves that are the best at, at, at doing that. But I think the... Um, the job of, of art communication is a is a really really important one, um, uh, and one that perhaps uh, I, I don't know is is not thought about perhaps as much as it should be. I think with contemporary art, like communicating to a non artistic audience, um, mm. and not not in terms of making it. Um, like in the pejorative sense, accessible or anything, but just just transmitting enthusiasm, you mm. know, because I think it's often um, it's not sort of generous in that <clears throat> in that way. Mm. Um, but when I talk to artists or people in galleries or something, it's always quite enthusiastic. People get excited, mm. and that's uh, that's what we should be trying to do with our communication. Mm. Mm. Actually, that what I've been, what I'm working on now, and I've been working on since for the last year and a half, uh, is mostly all public work. Mm. So just by chance, I I was asked to if I would participate into competitions for public works. Mm. So in 2019, so I decided uh, I wanted to give it. Uh, try. I haven't worked so much with public works before. Mm. Just a little bit. And then I got both of the commissions to my <laughs> <laughs> big surprise and that. Um, That's always the danger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was delivering the same date, like the 1st of November. Oh and then <laughs> so I was just like putting everything else aside and only work on those mm. uh, for some months. And yeah, I got both of them, and then later two other ones also. Actually, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Somehow, I guess someone saw something in what I hadn't done before. <laughs> mm, mm. At the same time, um, <laughs> but I have to say, it was also me deciding. I guess that I found that it's increasingly interesting to me to work uh, with public works for for many reasons um partly just well because it's often longer processes you can work for a year two or three years on something which i which is good for my kind of pace but also um that it meets a different audience uh, and there's a context a context that is different from a gallery context uh, and I mean, it's of course very instructive for any work put in public space, the space that it's intended to be put into uh, or that it's made for. Uh, I, I quite find that very good, I think. Very, very good for me too. <laughs> um, challenging and uh, rewarding, you could say, um, to. Uh, go into to look into different public institutions and contexts both the physical space and the history mm. uh, of places uh, as a starting point for 
uh, creating works. So that's mainly what I'm working on. Mm. So as a place and a context and give something a direction for work mm. in that mm. sense. Um, so um, Marianne, that uh, also concerning, told me that um, that you had a show there in 2009. Yeah. Many years ago. That's many years ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do Do you have time to 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 discuss that show a little? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that was my first ever solo show. Oh wow. Yeah, huh. um, I graduated from Vatican Art Academy in 2008, and then this, that was the first show I did after that, hmm. uh, which is quite a big thing and very important to me. Uh, to from after exams and all that, just head directly into. A new thing. So I did actually. I um, I showed my work from the graduation show. That was forming half of that show, and then uh, another work that I made the following fall called Variable Stars. So the 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 student work that I showed was In Search of Iceland's Bar, and uh, the new work was Variable Stars. Which was made, um, I think it was very, um, I was thinking a lot about uh, locations, exact locations, and um, um, materiality in a world that seemed to me, for my end, to be less and less about like physical things and more more about communication and how things travels so supposedly lightly uh, communicating online um, so the work uh, the student work in search of ice and spar was uh, uh, it was about uh, a type of mineral called iceland spar uh, that has some optical properties that made it very uh, useful for uh, range of scientific instruments uh, and especially in the 1800s uh, there was a, it was quarried or there was a quarry on Iceland uh, where you could find this mineral the calcite is very abundant and the optical quality uh, was less abundant uh, on earth so this this made this site very important as a an outcrop of the earth that you could find mostly there. So it was shipped from this quarry, Helgestadur in Iceland, and to uh, scientists and museums uh, around the world. Uh, but then uh, quite soon after the quarry opened, or some years, I don't remember the numbers here, but, or dates, but uh, it, they saw that it was going like there wasn't much left so it closed uh, and some scientists at the time declared a spar famine and wrote to the king we need we need more of this otherwise science can't <laughs> keep up or something and then it reopened and then eventually it closed again 
so, but at the time, it wasn't very important. Uh, I think the one place where it was shipped at, uh, or um, mined, at least on that scale, and it was nearly depleted before. Uh, it's now a UNESCO heritage site. Uh, and also, uh, then in the early 1900s, uh, there was the, some new inventions with polarizing filters uh, and also found in various other places around the world. But I was interesting in this, interested in how uh, this mineral was so crucial, like a quality of something that was in its pure form actually was so crucial to uh, the development of various sciences and also to mineralogy, because uh, you use it to study, also to study minerals. <laughs> uh, so it seemed like this kind of created a strange loop mm. uh, in that sense. But and also that it was nearly depleted. This is quite, you know, with the um, it, it's it's. It's a common story, oil, uh, and then you find more, or copper, or all these, mm. all these rare minerals that are uh, mined for and um, extracted from the earth. Uh, it's a quite uh, sad story of industrial civilization, but also that. Uh, replacements are found or excavating more other places to kind of solve the immediate threat of the situation. Uh, but that whole story was uh, very kind of, yeah, in, well, it was interesting to me. And I decided I, I was, I, I, I wanted to do something with it, but I, I, I guess I had this kind of intuitively this thought that, well, then I have to go there. I have to go to this place uh, because otherwise I can't do something that without having been to that that exact spot. But the turn of the project or the whole idea was when I realized that no, I don't have to go there because <laughs> it is about this the distribution and displacement in many ways and many ways and. This being in 2008, the internet was, and my use of the internet was a little bit different than today. But it was the it was the most you know immediate form of uh, communication and ways of making. Mm. So I what I did was to write a letter that I distributed to um, I think 10,000 different institutions, uh, museums. Wow. And manufacturers, people, researchers, and I was just looking like systematically through region from region to to ask for if they had a piece of Iceland spar from that particular site to send me one image, and then to collect. To, so the idea, the ambition was to uh, reassemble the quarry in a photographic form. So <laughs> um, then I, yeah, I received nearly 200, I think, 180 images that I then photographed from off my computer screen um, on analog 
film and then made handmade black and white copies and created a, like an installation with those photos. So th that has a little bit to do with, I guess, my background in photography because my training in photography was it's still in the analog age. It was we we learned that there was something called digital photography, but my my first uh, experience with photography was analog. So this that kind of materialization, uh, if that meant to me more of a materialization. So I, mean, I guess these things look a bit different today, but you can anyway. You can see in those in those handmade copies, you can still see like JPEG compression and. And the lines of the computer screen. Huh. So this is kind of uh, it. It was about location, but and distribution and this kind of uh, how location was sort of dissolving in a way. Like, did it mean something where you are? It was a tension between those questions. I thought that was interesting yeah. to me to work with in the work. And then with variable stars, I I took some of that both photography, analog photography, and materialization of that uh, into that work. And also location meant something. So for that work, I, uh, I um, as a starting point, uh, the vantage point was what you can see through that one window in the gallery space where that work was going to be mm. shown. Mm. Uh, what you could see on the sky, the stars, mm. uh, in that exact time period, in from the what was it, nineteenth of January two thousand and nine, uh, after sunset. So we had the opening hours were actually shifted to evening time, uh, mm. so that you could potentially see uh, the stars. Mm. Uh, so I went to Harvard. College Observatory in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where they have a large archive of uh, starry photographs uh, dating back to the late 1800s, when they first started using photography for scientific purposes in astronomy, mm. uh, which meant a big shift in that in for that institution. So with starting to because they had a big uh, cataloging project of um, cataloging the whole northern, the starry sky of the northern hemisphere. Mm. And using photography, the amount of data collected was much larger, like mm. vast amounts of data to be analyzed mm. on those glass plates. Mm. Uh, and uh, there they hired a lot of women, which were then later called. Um, the Harvard computers. Mm. Uh, they were analyzing these images, and uh, so it was a way for. They were hired. Um, I'm not sure, like technically, if they were hired as scientific staff, but anyway, it meant a way in to the institution of science for several women, and also women who later came through that work with new, very important. Uh, discoveries and knowledge into astronomy. Mm. So, and, and especially that, that title comes from that Henrietta Swan Levitt, uh, who was one of the Harvard computers, she, um, she noticed some 
what was it? Um, um, a correlation between uh, the period and intensity of variable stars, something that by that observation you could calculate uh, distances from Earth to an object on the sky. So her, uh, she, what, what she discovered was very crucial to a lot of later theories and, mm -hmm. and, and tools, you could say, for science. So photography had an, an, played a role there, which was uh, partly how I, I kind of came across this and, and wanted to, to go there. And also because of the history of these women who, who made, who did all this work that is crucial, but also uh, probably for a long time uh, under-recognized, I mm. suppose. Mm. So I, I chose, I went there and they were very generous in letting me look at the archives and then make uh, contact copies of uh, a selection of uh, photos. So I, I chose photos that showed variable stars and other stars that you can actually see from the window in Oslo. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, had this contact sheet made and cut out uh, a little piece as one star you could say from from each copy uh, and grew crystals around it to kind of further materialize it so it was a sort of a kind of relation uh, pointing to a relation between the starry sky what you could see only at certain times from a certain in in a certain place mm. uh, through history of photography and astronomy and the, the women who worked there in these photos and then the further materialization you could say with these crystals hmm. oh Toril, it's been so great to talk with you again it's been such a long time yeah, yeah. wonderful well, good to talk to okay. you okay have a nice afternoon uh, <laughs> you too. bye